Your Facebook yep. status is still it's complicated, isn't it? Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 91 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have James Edward Gray. Hello, everyone. Josh Susser. Hey, good morning. David Brady. Hello from the frozen tundra of Utah. Katrina Owen. Hello from the slushy, not-so-much tundra of Oslo. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Before we get going too much, I did want to make a quick announcement on my own behalf. I'm going to be teaching a Ruby on Rails course um, in a couple, in like four weeks, in a month. It's going to start March 6th. I know not everybody is terribly interested in this because we have a lot of competent Rails developers, but I keep getting requests for coaching based on the podcast, so I just wanted to let the folks know who want to learn Rails from me um, that you can go sign up at railsrampup.com. Um, the in-person courses cost around $2,000, and you, sometimes you have to travel to those. And what I'm providing is it's an online thing, so you don't have to pay for travel. The course is $1,200, but if you put in the code PODCAST, you can get it for $1,000. You get eight weeks, basically, of webinar-type training. So it's uh, it's in-person. Well, not in-person. It's online training. Um, you get mentorship from me as much as you need. Um, online forums, you can collaborate with other people, and you get copies of the video when it's all said and done, which means that you can go back and replay the lesson. So if you're interested in that, then go to railsrampup.com and sign up. So uh, Chuck, I am I am worried that you're wasting people's time. This is the Everybody Already Knows Ruby Rogues podcast. So <laughs> wanted to remind you. Okay, okay, we have plenty of listeners who are not Ruby developers. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and we love them too. Yep, yep. We love all our listeners equally. Yep. We also so, love our guest. We do. We have a guest, and this is Brian Shirai, formerly known as Brian Ford. He's been on the show before, but why don't you introduce yourself again, Brian? Hey, so greetings from uh, rainy Portland, Oregon. Yeah, so most people know me from my work on either RubySpec or Rubinius. Uh, Rubinius is a Ruby implementation, and... Um, Evan created that in 2006, and I've been working on it almost since the day he announced it. Uh, RubySpec is a project to create an executable implement, or sorry, executable specification for the Ruby programming language, describing all those great things that Ruby does. So, so Brian, I, I have a question about the the Rubinius team. Is there some agreement that you all made that when the men who work on Rubinius get married, they change their name? That's a really good question. So Evan, yeah, Evan changed his name. Evan and Abby, they actually picked a new last name together. I just really hated my last name for my entire life, so I was happy to change it. There we go. Cool. <laughs> <That is interesting. laughs> so so what, keep, what keeps you more busy, Rubinius or Ruby Spec? Well, they go together like a sort of hand in glove. Uh, we write Ruby spec for everything that we add to Rubinius that is uh, Ruby related as much as we can. There are, there are certain uh, internal VM things that we have some C++ tests for. So um, it's really a lot of, of back and forth between the two. Uh, but definitely there's, I think there now that we've been working on Ruby spec for so long, we have about... Well, somewhere around 45,000 examples, 419, 
So now a lot of work is is just focused on on uh, compatibility with Rubinius. But we we discover new um, areas that aren't covered in Ruby spec pretty much every day. So it's it's still a lot of, of shared effort between the two. How long does it take the test suite to run? Just out of curiosity. Well, we run uh, in one eight mode. Uh, we run in about a hundred and thirty seconds, and one nine because we have a bunch of process and spawn specs that all together take about 30 seconds to run. The, the total runtime for 1.9 gets up around 200 and I think around 220 or something seconds. All the people out there with 200 tests that take 14 minutes to run, I hope you heard that. Yeah, That's that was freaking four awesome. Minutes. Four minutes on 1.9. Four minutes for what, 43,000? 40, how many thousands? Well, there's about... 45,000 examples, there's about 150,000 expectations. <laughs> That's, wow, awesome. That's awesome. Make your test faster, kids. <laughs> no kidding. So, Brian, we, we asked you here today because there's been a lot of discussion in the Ruby community lately uh, about Ruby's design process. And I think that was pretty much kicked off by your RubyConf talk uh, at the end of of last year, uh, where you kind of laid out some problems that you see uh, and their impact. And I was wondering if maybe you could tell us a little about that. Sure. Um, so the very short version is that we've been writing Ruby specs since 2006. And that's uh, quite a long time. And we've written lots and lots and lots of Ruby spec. And in the process, we've discovered a lot of areas of Ruby that are difficult for different implementations. So once upon a time, Ruby only had one implementation. And so the semantics of the language are defined by that implementation. And it's really easy, if you're the only one doing this, for things to get in there by accident. And also, when we first started Ruby spec, or, or what was to be Ruby spec, it was just a, a, a spec suite in Rubinius. When we started that, um, there were not a great number of tests. There were a couple projects. There was a Ruby test project. There were the tests in MRI, but there were there were not a great number of, of tests. So uh, we there was not um, a lot of awareness of how complex Ruby was. Many people knew it was a big language and a and a complex language, but there are so many subtle and and oftentimes very confusing aspects of Ruby behavior that. I want to say they were mostly just taken for granted, but honestly, I think many people did not even know them. I think I wrote one time uh, about um, a 40-line file where each line was one example of how an argument passed to a block would be processed in 1.8. And there was something like 40-some cases, I think. So over time, as we uh, implemented more and more of Ruby and more and more of Ruby spec, uh, and, and certainly as other implementations um, like JRuby and Maglev and IronRuby made progress, it, it became apparent that it would be helpful if there was a way for us to discuss things that were perhaps challenges across implementations or at least have a more precise definition or, or figure out a way that things that might be implementation or platform specific like Fork could be described in a way that they're not ex ex um, excluding other implementations whose platforms don't allow that functionality. So 
in the old days, it was just Windows versus Linux or Unix, right? And then it became, it became much more complicated. We had a Smalltalk environment. We had a, a JVM environment, CLR, DLR environment. So at one point a while ago, we actually did have some Ruby design meetings. We got on IRC and we chatted about some stuff. And we did that a, a few times and then they, they fell off. And then um, after sort of years of working on this, and and one other thing that I think is really important, we might want to like touch on in more detail, but after seeing repeatedly people move, first it was Erlang. Erlang came into the Ruby community. People were super excited and they started doing Erlang primarily for concurrency. And then um, closure started becoming big and people were really excited. And one of the things that people often said about going to closure is concurrency and data structures. And then Node.js got really big and I gave a talk, is Node.js better? Where I was looking at why do I see Ruby people leaving Ruby for Node.js? Uh, and then there's Scala. So that concern, along with the complexity of implementing Ruby and the work we did on Ruby spec, started to make me very concerned about Ruby. And then I had a conversation with someone who was doing an implementation of Ruby that's not yet public yet. And he said to me something that was really made me pause. And he said, you know, I've often wondered what a dying open source project looks like. And I responded to him. I said, well, I, I'm wondering what a dying language looks like, mm. right? And uh, there's, no, there's no good guide, you know, for that sort of thing. And so that, that got me to propose the talk for Ruby, RubyConf. And I wasn't sure it would be accepted because it, it sounded pretty controversial. But it was. And so... Um, ultimately I came to the point of giving that talk through those things I've described and we can talk about the talk more, but that's, that's why I gave the talk. It's out of a great deal of, of love for Ruby and the people that I know in Ruby and the things that I've seen done in Ruby and uh, a great deal of concern about the well-being of the language and the people who use the language. So I, I want to ask a really quick question because a lot of what you're saying is kind of focused more around the implementers and implementations I mean, you know, concurrency is something that I think we would all like to see uh, Ruby and MRI in particular handle better. But besides that, I mean, what what's the trade-off for the the users of the language? You know, just the lay developer that's not an implementation person. Um, what why do we care if it's you know if some of these things are hard to implement in the other implementations, especially if we may or may not be using them? Well, the reason that people may care is because they might be on one of those platforms and they may really love Ruby and they might not have the opportunity to use it. Mm -hmm. So if, you know, JRuby has a lot of a lot of specific things that the JVM, it has a lot of features that it provides, but it has things that are limitations relative to MRI. And so if those features are important, but they're not available, and you're sort of um, constrained to that platform for whatever reason, it might be the only thing available at your work, and you want to explore Ruby, your opportunities might be very limited. And so the, the, my great concern over the unity of the, of the Ruby language and um, the, the ability of developers to you know, use it is because I think Ruby is a fantastic language, and I'd like to see everybody who wants to use it be able to use it. Yep. Yeah, I, I can see that. So, so Brian, Brian I, uh, just as a little tangent off of something you said a moment ago, where you said, what does a dying language look like? And you know, everyone knows I, I used to do Smalltalk, and Smalltalk was a dying language for a while. And it, it was starting to fade into irrelevance 
in, uh, I guess, probably the 90s. And then uh, the Squeak project came along and they came up with it, it. I think it breathed a lot of new life into Smalltalk. And so there's still people doing Smalltalk today. A squeak so I, was the first open source for Smalltalk, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. yeah. So would you say that open source saved a dying language there? No, I think that was part of it. I, I don't think it was just that it was open source, although the, I'm sure that was a significant part of it. But it was that it made Smalltalk accessible in a whole new way, not just mm -hmm. because it was open source, but because Squeak made all of the tools that you needed to create a new Smalltalk uh, available right there in Smalltalk itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you know, you know Smalltalk has always been a self-hosted language. It's just, you know, you had a very small kernel to do, and then most of the language was written in Smalltalk itself. Yeah. But then Squeak turned it into not just the stuff written in Smalltalk was written in Smalltalk, but even the kernel of the language, the VM, could be written in um, Smalltalk. Self-hosting language. Okay, yeah. 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 So, so it just, like, took the Smalltalk idea and pushed it uh, sort of to the ultimate level that you could manage. And, and that gave people a lot of uh, interest in playing with it, and it ma it just made it more accessible in new ways. So, but but my point is that Smalltalk was, I think, on the road to ruin. It was, it was doing the slow fade, and that's and that the Squeak project brought it back from oblivion. And you know, it's it's never dominated the way that um, many of us would have liked to have seen. But I, you know, it's still it still has some vitality left in it. So anyway, that's just a little sidebar on that. Well, I think it's a great point, Josh, but at the same time, like, like I demonstrated in my talk, you know, in 2006, there were a tiny handful of us being paid to write Ruby. And now at a RubyConf or a RailsConf, everyone's paid to write Ruby. And if we were to look at people who wanted to be paid to write in Smalltalk and the number of people who actually are, I think the disparity, the ratio there would be pretty great. And I, while Ruby won't disappear, the number of people who are paid to write Ruby now compared to before and the number of people, I've never met someone who said, you know, I'm forced to write Ruby every day and I hate it. I sure wish I could <laughs> write in, you know, X language. And so while I think you make a great point, I'm just concerned that, that I don't want people to add that to the reasons not to care about this issue because I, I don't think that Ruby will go away, but that doesn't mean that people will be paid to write it. Mm -hmm. So I have a question for you. Do you think that there's a chance maybe that if Ruby and some of these implementations diverge one way or another, that that might be something that saves Ruby or changes the way that Ruby works or changes the way the process works? It's possible, but my concern there is that we, we have uh, historical references, right? We can look at Smalltalk, right? We can look at Lisp, and I don't think that when we want to talk about developer pain, if you've ever had to port something from one platform to another, you spend a great deal of time and the feeling, so I've done this, I've ported from Windows to Linux, I've ported from Linux to Windows, um, I've ported between different uh, operating systems that were supposed to be very similar. The feeling that you get after doing all that work is I've wasted a lot of time for no good reason, really. It's like I'm, now I'm back to where I started. It's just on a different platform. And so I feel like if we allow Ruby to fragment, maybe it will flourish in certain areas, but I think that it's a big black mark against the language. We already have a lot of black marks. We already you know, are this dynamic language that doesn't care about safety, supposedly. If we throw types in there, we could be a safe dynamic language or something. Uh, so are, are, are you trolling us? 
<laughs> uh, no, I, I, am totally, I, am, I am totally not trolling you. Uh, believe me, I've heard every, pretty much every proposal for the things that would fix Ruby. Um, but so, so you know, one of the possibilities is that Ruby will fragment. But my work from the very beginning, like I, I kid you not, if if only Rubinius Channel on on IRC had a transcript. The first question I asked. Wilson Bilkovich, when I entered that channel, was, are you guys planning on making uh, an implementation that is com uh, compatible with MRI, or are you planning on changing the language? And Wilson's like, no, we're, we're going to be exactly what MRI does. And I was like, cool, I'm in. So um, I, I don't want to see the language fragment. Could it be good? I think only in a very limited way, in that it might thrive in some particular domain, but it would be bad for the language in general bad for the, the the people who look at it and say why should i why should i pay my developers to write in this language yeah i i think some languages fragmentation or um from a geneticist perspective adaptive radiation uh can be can can be advantageous because it lets you uh it gives you access to different communities of developers like you know, Smalltalk went through this fragmentation where it went from Smalltalk 80 that ran only on Xerox machines, and then they got alternate implementations, including Smalltalk V, which was a variant that ran on, it had two different variants that would run on Windows and Mac, and they were mostly the same, but there were some porting issues. Uh, but, but I think that that let Smalltalk reach many more people, and then eventually it sort of coalesced into one dominant player and a few other small players. But I think that Ruby is much more mature, and there's like many, many more users out there. So I don't think that that sort of, I don't think there's an advantage in fragmentation to try and reach more people is what I'm saying. Yeah. I, I also think that Ruby is a very, very complex language. And so the incompatibilities that we could get would make the effort to port between, you know, things even more difficult than other mm. languages. I can see that. Yeah. So just to kind of speak to that a little bit, uh, Brian's talking about, you know, how, how does this affect us lay developers? And when uh, M17N was introduced into uh, Ruby, uh, it was right about the same time that faster CSV replaced the old CSV library. So I had to go in and, and put the new CSV library in there. And in doing so, I had to make it M17N savvy so that it worked with the new encoding engine. And... Um, M17N standing for multilingualization, of course. Um, and in doing that, I, I was working with this system that was still, you know, very new and, and fresh and uh, really complicated and not well uh, documented at all. And so there were like a few people that understood how it worked and I had to ask them some questions and kind of reverse engineer some things uh, with some tests and and uh, figure out how all that works. And, and the process is that I found it was a very complex system and it, it still had bugs, obviously. And, and I flushed several of those in writing the initial CSV implementation. We, we found a lot of those cases and they actually had to fix stuff just so we could get it working. So yeah, it, it does actually affect us. Right. So I, I kind of want to move along a little bit and talk about this proposal that you made. You kind of did it in your talk, and we'll put a link to the talk in the show notes. But uh, we also have a, a link that we'll put in the show notes to your proposal for the Ruby design process. 
Do you want to just talk briefly about what the points are and more interesting to me is what problems they are trying to solve? Because we've talked about some of them, but not all of them. Sure. So the summary is, uh, is up at rubyspec.org slash design. And it has links to, um, to some other information, other, implement, other, other implementations, and my talk and stuff like that. So the reason I put this up as just a sort of bullet point thing was to try to be as concise as possible. But that's challenging and communicating. So one thing that, w- that I would point out is that this is, um, well, let me quote Evan. He said uh, one time, and I'm sure he's not the only one to say this, most problems in technology are people problems, which is not to say that people are problems, but that most things that we struggle with in technology have nothing to do with technology, but more with the way we are interacting with people or the, the communication or the you know, emotional involvement and stuff like that. So being very concise is not necessarily an advantage in trying to communicate something that is emotional and um, and really touches people deeply because they you know care about Ruby. So, right, yeah. So, Brian, that's a that's a that's a that's a great point, Brian. I wanna I would just uh, put a footnote in here and recommend that people watch uh, Joe O'Brien's People Patterns talk. He, he's done it a couple places, and there's videos yes. of it all over. We'll we'll put one in the show notes. I know he did it at uh, Gogoruko last year too, but he also did it at Steel City and a couple other places. And that it just like totally speaks to what you're talking about. And he even says that quote of, uh, you know, you know, never seen a project fail for technical reasons. It's always the people reasons. So continue. Yeah, that's great. I, I haven't actually seen that talk. I will go watch it. So I'll run, I can run through these points. There are seven points and, um, my intention, I can give you the rationale for each point. My intention here is to make the lightest weight process that will result in the best decision for Ruby. And since I've used two qualifiers there, lightweight and best, I need to explain sort of what my standard is for those things. So lightweight means that it requires the the least amount of synchronization in a sense, the least amount of we all need to get together and have a long conversation about some aspect of it. Ruby is a very complex, the behaviors of just something like the keyword arguments could take hours and hours and hours of conversation. There are at least four, if not five or six significant implementations of the Ruby programming language. Every one of the developers on all of those projects are very, very busy. We have a ton of work to do and a ton of really awesome things we would love to bring to Ruby developers. And we spend 95% of our time just trying to get compatibility down. Fortunately, we have Ruby spec, right? But even that has holes. So when I say lightweight, it's very important to me because I've worked hard for years now to get Ruby features out to people and I don't want to waste time on aspects of, uh, you know, process that would be, that would not give good return. And the, the other qualification, which is sort of the best decision for Ruby, my concern there is opening up so far, the decisions about Ruby have been made by a very small group of people that do not necessarily represent the interests of stakeholders. And we've been very, I think, narrow in our definition of the Ruby community. Mostly we've discussed people who write Ruby code. And in the Ruby community, we actually have implementers. You know, we have people who write Ruby code. We have people who use 
applications written in Ruby. They have no idea probably what Ruby is. All of our relatives have probably used some application. Ravelry.com is a knitting website. So many people I know, um, people in their 60s and 70s and 80s that are friends of my wife's mother who use that website and have no idea what Ruby is or Ruby on Rails or anything else. So there are users of those applications written in Ruby. There are businesses that pay people to write those applications in Ruby. And those businesses can be something like the company I work for, Engine Yard, who's very, very deeply into Ruby, right, to companies that don't even really care what Ruby is. They just want a website written. So what I want to do is expand the definition of the Ruby community widely and look at all the different people who participate in that community and where their concerns may influence Ruby design decisions or where Ruby design decisions may adversely impact those people. So that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And and I, I think you really have kind of outlined, um, you know, the, the number of people that can be impacted by these decisions. So yeah, it's a lot of people. Yeah. So can we talk about some of these points on this? Uh, I'm, I'm just looking at rubyspec.org slash design. I'm not going to go into the deep details. Yeah. So do you want do you want to uh, do you want to bring them up or do you want me to just sort of read through each one and give you the rationale for it and then we can like go off on a discussion of those? Well, yeah, let's do it point by point. I have yeah. questions. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll I'll read the points and then and then you guys can ask questions. How does that sound? Sounds good. Uh, how right. about this? You read the point. I'll give you my short rationale and then we'll have a questions. Okay, that sounds good because cool. then we'll have some context. All right. A Ruby design council made up of representatives from any specific Ruby implementation where significant means able to run a base level of Ruby spec, which is to be determined. So my emphasis here is on uh, significant Ruby implementation. And the reason for that is because Ruby is very complex. And I have watched a lot of proposals over time for features in Ruby that make absolutely no sense. The people who have spent literally thousands of hours implementing Ruby and care deeply about Ruby, have a level of insight into Ruby that I think is required for making good decisions. Um, and so I think that we have to have um, an opportunity for each of those people uh, to have a voice in decisions about the design of Ruby. And point two will go into a little bit more detail around that. I just wanted to say that I, I don't feel this one is very controversial. I mean, if you go far enough is to implement, you know, what is on some level a working Ruby, it makes total sense to me that, that you'd get a seat at the table. And I, I'm pretty sure everybody shares that view. I mean, oh, I know oh James. <laughs> you have a rosy view. No? <laughs> I, I, I've seen uh, I've seen people uh, yakking on this one, saying, "Oh my God, this excludes most people who have a who are stakeholders in Ruby." That you know, just just because just because you aren't implementing Ruby doesn't mean that you shouldn't have a seat at the table. Let's address that when we get to the lower points, because I think he kind of specifies what the. Uh, council is for and stuff, but uh, that's great. Okay. okay, we we can we can wait, but I just want to. I'm, okay, so I'm, it's yeah. not universally accepted, but also I just want to point out that it's really common. Like uh, for something like Linux, of course, there are kind of you know there's there's Linux up at the top, but then he has his his various like sub lieutenants basically that you know focus on things like the kernel or or the I/O system or things like that. So I 
I think this kind of thing is pretty common. Yeah, I, I think it could work. I, I have to wonder a little bit out loud as to whether or not um, Matt's is willing to give this a try. And Brian, should, should, should we hold that for a moment? <laughs> well, Brian probably knows this better than uh, me, but in my experiences with Matt's, he is 100% open to talking with people and, and accepting their input and ideas. That's That's my opinion. Right, but Will this design council have kind of the final say as to what goes into the language, or will that uh, this stay point, with Matt? You're getting ahead of yourself. That, yeah. That's why yeah. I was saying I didn't think this point is very controversial. Point number one just forms a council. It does okay. not outline their powers or anything like that, right? Okay, that's my opinion. Yeah, they're good. They're good points. We will. We will definitely get an opportunity to address those. Okay, sounds good. Point number two. A proposal for a Ruby change can be submitted to any member of the Ruby Design Council. If a member of the larger Ruby community wishes to submit a proposal, they must work with a member of the council. You you missed one word there, Chuck, and it actually changes the meaning. It's proposal for Ruby change can be submitted by any member of the council. You said to any member. Oh, it's yes. by. Okay. Now we get into, so we have a design council, and now we talk about what they do. So... The design council is a, uh, the point of the design council is to look at proposals for Ruby changes, so changes to Ruby. And um, the point here is that everyone has equal uh, opportunity to propose a change to Ruby. And the reason that that's important is because, like I said, there's different implementations that face very different challenges on their particular platform. And MOTS doesn't know about that. You know, Mats has said repeatedly at his keynotes and his the Q and A's at, at uh, RubyConf that he's not a threading guy, and yet there's decisions that Mats can make that impact deeply impact the language uh, when it comes to concurrency. So the point here is that the different Ruby Design Council members may have expertise in a particular area, and they are the most suited to put together a, a detailed proposal that addresses those issues and then bring sort of shepherd that and bring that to the council as a whole. And this particular point, I'm going to preempt someone who's going to ask this, but this particular point is very controversial and it's related to the, you know, the formation of the Ruby Design Council, but it's more about, hey, what if, you know, I do Ruby and I'm very knowledgeable about Ruby, why can't I propose something? 